Greetings program. Hello and welcome to Toronologically Speaking, a movie by minute podcast talking about Disney's 1982 movie, Tron. This is Minute 32. I'm your host, Duncan Shields, and with me today is my tenacious, shrewd, and knowledgeable guest co-host, Duncan Shields. Me again. Solo week continues here at the Tron Minute by Minute podcast. Let's see what happens in Minute 32 when we last left Flynn. He was being taken apart and sucked into Shiva the laser at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory and given a virtual tour of the conduit between this world and the next world of the computers. So he is currently traveling, reduced to atoms or electrons or bits and bytes, and making the transition into the world of Tron. We go deeper into the world of Tron, and Flynn comes to life in the grid, wondering what the high holy heck is going on around here and evil-looking, powerful hockey player guards approach him. Now the red poles that were going past the camera where we left off last time switch perspective as the camera spins somewhat sickeningly again, and we see that the red beams of light are arcing up within a blue globe oh arcing up from a blue globe with what looks like tetris shaped gray i guess clouds floating over it Uh, the world is covered in a grid of triangular polygonal shapes and while the clouds are covered in square grids We come level with the curvature of this sphere, and it's like we're flying in the atmosphere of a digital planet. As we get closer to the clouds, we can see little violet pinpoints of light flashing intermittently at the grid intersections of the squares on top and bottom of the clouds. And then we fly into one of the clouds, and then that is the moment of transition as we go under them still to the mind-bendingly awesome music of Wendy Carlos. It's hard to really encapsulate what it was like to see this in a movie theater on the big screen in 1982. This is before Lawnmower Man. This is before anything that had computer animation in it on the big screen. There was... Not much before this, and definitely nothing even remotely attempted on this scale. So, I mean, they said yes to it, and they tried to do it before they knew how to do probably 70% of what what they ended up doing. So that in itself is an achievement. But this traveling, this part here, I mean you were transported along with him into the world of Tron, and it really, really worked. It was a very transformative moment, I think, in cinema, and I think most people who saw this when it came out had their minds blown. Watching it now, all of these graphics could be done on a home computer with a bit of talent and a little bit of rendering time, but back then, nothing had been attempted like this, and the results that they got visually were absolutely fantastic. 
The prairie of the mainframe extends forward in triangular polygonal shapes on a rolling landscape of hills here and there. Uh, some of the triangles have white lines instead of blue lines. I like to think that that suggests either no-go areas or perhaps digital farmland, little <laughs> digital wheat crops or something like that. We see a, a city-like structure in the distance with a blue beam shooting up from it into the clouds. And that's unlike all the red beams that we've seen. We skim closer and we can see that this is shooting up from the middle of a gray maze structure, not unlike the maze that Clue was poking his nose around in in the beginning of the film. Now the main structure in the middle little looks a little like the... Uh, like the Guggenheim or the UN headquarters in Europe. It's like a flared half cylinder set up like a, a wind shear protecting the blue beam, like a, like one of those dog collars, one of those sort of loudspeaker bullhorn dog collars that you put around a dog's neck to keep it from chewing on itself after you've had an animation, uh, after it's had a, an operation. But then you cut that in half the cone, not the dog, and then use that to protect the uh, the building. So it kind of looks like that. We travel up to it and into it. We go close to the blue beam, close to the blue beam, into the blue beam, and then we angle down and we're going down the blue beam. And we're treated to a brief, almost monochromatic kaleidoscope effect. Like in the initial transition, we see this kaleidoscope effect but it's just black and white and turquoise instead of the usual you know 900 colors that you'd see in a in a regular kaleidoscope display in the creator's commentary they say that they got these visuals of the landscape by of Tron's world by pointing the cameras at the rendered images being displayed in a on a on a high resolution Evans and Sutherland CRT with many passes needed for each frame with different filters for the different details and colors until you end up with what looks like solid shaded objects moving around but it's actually made of lots of tiny lines and lots of different passes because this wasn't a, a finished image that they produced they produced one facet of a wall and then they did the cloud pass and then they did the light pass and this the effort it took to make this whole sequence is incredible and then we get one of my favorite effects i've ever seen in a movie in my life to this day i still love it so so much um, we get a blank dark gray room a bright, a bright turquoise cylinder comes down and anchors itself to the floor. Then within we get a pulse of light that starts at the bottom and works its way up, prismatically shimmering into separate disks of different sizes as it generates a wireframe model of Flynn. And then a second pulse works its way up the beam, resing the rest of Flynn into existence. 
and then he stands as if in stasis for a second, head down, arms limp. And I just love and the sound that goes with it, the two sweeps of the of the pulse of light, bringing him into existence in a primitive form and then refining him, bringing him into existence in his final form, inert before he turns on. I just love the idea of being able to do that in real life, of being able to create something in real life like that, just that that two bursts, two waves, and then bam, it's created, and it comes up into life. This whole Genesis moment of somebody being created inside the, I keep wanting to call it the Matrix, <laughs> uh, is amazing. Come to think of it, yeah, you had the Wizard of Oz, and then you had Tron, and then you had the Matrix. Those are kind of the three big, you're going into another world uh, metaphor films that I can think of. And each of them was a cultural touchstone of that generation. I wonder if there'll be another one in uh, in a few years. I think we're due for another one, right? What was it? Matrix was 99. Tron was 82. Well, The Wizard of Oz was like in the 50s. Well, anyway, but I, or before that, I digress. As he awakens, several neon forms and abstract shapes come to life around him. First blue, stuttering into life on the floor and walls, and then red up the walls themselves. And then the red on the walls starts to cycle through a series of sequential pulses, and larger shapes made of points of light come to life on the walls. There's a little artifacting on him, and the black and white film is grainy, and it's like he's not fully anchored to the center of the frame for every frame. You can see him shifting now and again you know like they did their best to make sure that he was framed but there's just a little a little shimmer a little shift and that goes throughout the film it's a flaw of the medium but in my opinion it accidentally contributes a great deal to the aesthetic of the film itself and this feeling of like being in a different world in a way talking about the wizard of oz earlier it's sort of like the opposite of the wizard of oz because in The Wizard of Oz, it goes from black and white in the real world to color in the fantastical world of Oz. Whereas here, it goes from color in the real world to black and white in the bizarre other world that Flynn ends up going to. Hopefully I didn't call Flynn Tron earlier. I might have done that sometime. We get a close-up of Flynn's eyes in black and white as he looks down at himself in wonder. And we get a shot of his, his giant wrist braces crawling with blue circuitry and patterns as it's sort of shimmering kind of like water, but it's also pulsing like electricity. Flynn says, uh, Flynn says, Oh man, this isn't happening. It only thinks it's happening. Which sort of reminds me of the... I don't know if you ever saw that episode of Futurama, but there's, uh, there's a, a hippie character that gets eaten by a lion. Oh no, he gets eaten by uh, one of the aliens. And as he's getting eaten, he's like, oh, this isn't happening, man. 
So I think that uh, this isn't happening is a common denial trope that I remember from also from aliens. That's something that uh, the late Bill Paxton, RIP, here's to you, Bill Paxton, says when he's like, oh, this isn't happening, ma'am. This isn't happening, ma'am. As his character Hudson would sometimes say. Or also from a brief Google in Gravity Falls, Tomorrowland, Rob Schneider in The Hot Chick, and uh, I'm sure a dozen others. But the addition of it only thinks it's happening really sets it apart. In the creator commentary, they mention that when Flynn says, this isn't happening, it only thinks it's happening, is to show the audience that Flynn, of all people, should know what's up. But even he can't handle what's going on. So we are truly in a different world now. So this is, we're all on the same page. Nobody knows what's going on. The main character, the audience, we're all going forward together in a process of discovery. So at second 49 and at second 51, and at two flashes in second 57 of this minute, we see something that you'll have to keep an eye out for the rest of the movie. We get these flashes where Flynn suddenly increases in brightness. Now we see it as a result of the lights in the background flaring for a second, like maybe they're faulty or this world just has lights that randomly pulse or power surge or something like that. But this effect happened because of an error on the part of the production crew. Now this is something I touched on before, I think, but the film supplier Kodak dropped off like 200 huge boxes of large size film for them to use for this project. And, uh, like each frame of the film was going to need to be blown up, cut out, shipped off, processed, layered, brought back, shot again, and eventually turned into one frame of the movie. Very effort intensive. But if you get it into a, a conveyor belt assembly line kind of process, it's something that's doable. But it all starts with the film that was dropped off for them to use. Now, they had dropped off all of the boxes at once and they were kept in the loading dock where they had been dropped off in a I assume temperature controlled <laughs> protected environment uh, but when they were going through the process they would grab another box of film do what they needed to do with it and then when that was over they would grab another box of film do what they needed to do with it and they were grabbing the boxes of film randomly from the pile of boxes of film and they would send it off and then when it came back they found out that for some sequences uh, Flynn or whoever the characters on the screen would suddenly pulse in brightness they would snap up in brightness and it was unusable like it was unusable I can only imagine the panic that they must have felt at that particular time and they called Kodak and they're like, what's going on? The film that we've got is jumping in brightness and it's unusable after the processing. And they're like, well, are you using it in the correct order? And uh, they were like, 
I'm sorry, what? Order? What do you mean order? And on the boxes, there were numbers. So they dropped off like 800 boxes of film or something like that. So the numbers were like 1 to 800. There's box 1, box 2, box 3, box 4, box 5. And they didn't notice. So they'd been grabbing the boxes willy-nilly. So they were using box number 650 right next to box 28, right next to box 400. And so what happens is when they're producing the film, uh, box, like when they're actually making the film, when Kodak was actually making the film, the way they make the film, there is a difference of, I don't know if f-stop is the right word or exposure, but there's a slight difference in the quality of the film over the course of box one to box 800. Like it's still a manual process of making the film and there are complexities that lead to differences in the end product. And if you use them in order, you don't notice. But if you use a much later box right next to a much earlier box, there's a jump in brightness. So once they knew that, they went back to using the boxes in order and were very careful about it. But they already had a ton of scenes that they'd shipped off and gotten back that they couldn't redo without adding half of the budget again to the production so they were like what do we do and what they decided uh they, yeah they, too much money had been sunk into it to reshoot those sequences would be nigh impossible again getting the actors again going through the whole process again and one of the visual effects supervisors decided that as a way of making that work was wherever it jumped in brightness they would have, if they were on a prairie, if they were out in the open, then there would be a meteor. There would be a passing pulse of light that would go past and light all the characters up. Or some part of the set would have a line of light on it that would like, you know, stutter and come on like a fluorescent light or something like that. And they would just go back and reverse engineer all the shots where it happened and try to time it so that some element of the set or some element of the scene would pulse with light and light the character so that that would explain the sudden difference in brightness and it wouldn't look like a sloppy mistake. And it works beautifully. I had no idea. I thought it was all done intentionally until I started doing this podcast and started going in to do a little research. And now I can't unsee it. Throughout the whole film, I can see these moments where the lights just strobe for a second and light up the character. And it just makes the whole world seem alive. So I think it was a, a very happy accident, as Bob Ross would like to say. Like it worked like a charm. I thought it was a subtle touch, you know, not a mistake. It makes the world seem faulty and lived in instead of sterile and constant. It's like one thing they get wrong when they try to portray future Earth in just regular real-world movies is they try to make everything futuristic and non-stick plastic and that's one thing they got with they got right with the star wars trilogy in the very beginning was i think one of their high concept sentences for the art direction was just the future is old 
It's what they did right in the first Blade Runner. It's what they did right in a whole bunch of movies where the future is, you know, yeah, you've got land speeders, but they're old and they're in need of repair. You know, yeah, you've got these cantinas and these bars and stuff, but they're old and then they're in need of repair. And so even in this movie here, where they go into the computer world, it would have been very easy to make like a, a nagel kind of like shiny chrome you know all this sort of cliches of the computer animation at that time glossy plastic try to make something really shiny and clean and precise and uh and what they ended up doing was making something that was not ropey but obviously lived in and you know had occasional breakdowns and needed help you know those garbage sites there's looks what looks like some faulty wiring what looks like energy being not quite distributed evenly in and around the world and so i like that idea that there's these like brownouts and blackouts and kind of fingers crossed stuff happening in the background of that was just a byproduct of them trying to fix a mistake that they'd made in the real world that ended up really making the the world seem lived in so i think that's fantastic so flynn is standing there wondering what the heck's going on when a massive hooded guard that's all glowing this red glowing red hooded guard uh the guard's hood steps up to flynn and the guard's hood leaves the face in complete blackness behind its puffy pads and respirator so this is big guard dressed in what looks like pillowy hockey gear with a hood and respirator and his face is in shadow and he three of them walk up and surround flynn brandishing their uh staffs staves staves i don't know how what's the plural of staff uh and he i think flynn's taking this remarkably calmly in terms i think he's probably in shock at this point he's just like what the heck could possibly be happening right now and so he takes it easy as only the dude can and that brings us to the end of this minute uh i'll like to go over a little bit between uh, the differences between the screenplay and the novel at this point in the novel <laughs> that's going to become a a cliche i think as we go forward in the novel the way i pronounce that he uh likens the patterns on his forearm armor to meridians on acupuncture charts and i like that because that's exactly what it looks like from what i've seen in acupuncture charts sort of just hanging around in the in the windows in certain stores and stuff like that they've got this acupuncture charts and they have a very specific series of dots and lines that uh that really looks like what's on his forearm here so and in the novel he thinks he's hallucinating or dreaming like the last thing he remembers is hacking into the mcp but he has no transition birth memory of coming here so on the inside he's super disoriented and gibbering on the inside but he's trying to make sense of what's going on and that's clear there but not exactly clear here I mean it, it is clear here he's a good actor but he's not giving off a vibe of barely held in check panic he's more just giving off a vibe of okay 
Let's see what happens next. Uh, let's see. In the screenplay, it is not much of a difference except that Flynn falls down a tube of light and lands on his feet at the bottom instead of being what uh, up-resed, resed, integrated, digitally brought into being, um, rendered, generated. He, f yeah, and, and there's a, in the in the screenplay there's a tube and he's like whoa and then he lands and stumbles and uh i'm glad they went the way they did because that's this is one of my this is this is literally my favorite moment in the film i mean i'm gonna say that a bunch of times no doubt but this is one of my favorite movie favorite moments in the film well that takes us to the end of this minute um if you want to get in touch with us, go on over to TronologicallySpeaking.com. Uh, drop us a line on Twitter at TronologicallySpeaking. Send us an email at TronologicallySpeaking at gmail.com. Or join us on Facebook at the Tronologically Speaking Tron Minute by Minute listeners page. Shout out to Pond5.com for the awesome intro and outro music. Special thanks to the Star Wars Minute that started it all. Go on over to MoviesByMinute.com and see if your favorite movie is there. If it isn't, consider doing one yourself. It's a very inclusive and encouraging community. Uh, and with that, I say to you, end of line.